Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode 12 of my book entitled Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. In this episode, I am going to finish discussing chapter 6, which I began in the last episode, and where I covered the Earth Clock, which I not only had the hands of the day, month, and year on it, but also the hands of procession, obliquity, and eccentricity. In the last episode as well, I took the time to really get to the fundamentals of climate science and show how it is accurate in what it records in things like ice cores, as well as other forms of cores that we pull from the Earth. One thing that I really liked about the last episode is how the flagellants were an example of what people do when they don't understand the cause of something, and how they would hurt themselves and think that it was due to their sins that they were experiencing the tragic disruption in climate when the reality was a volcano tens of thousands of miles away was the actual cause. And had they known that it was a volcano that caused this, and had they known the science of volcanoes and understood the lack of intentionality related to volcanoes, then they wouldn't have had to have blamed themselves so hard. Just like we today don't blame ourselves when there is an earthquake or a tsunami because we understand things better thanks to the scientists who have helped us gain that understanding. And in this episode, I'm going to feature another really important scientist named Milutin Milankovitch, who has been hiding in the background of so many of these episodes so far. I'm glad I can finally bring him out, because he is the original person who truly understood the effects of precession, obliquity, and eccentricity in a way that no one before him truly had. And he died before he could be justified in all of his work. But because of him, we know so much more about the history of the Earth, and I'm glad I get to share not only a little of his story, but also what he helped us understand. In the last episode, I also told you that we were going to start diving deep back in time, and while I only covered about the last couple thousand years in the last episode, in this one, I'm going to take you back 100,000 years. And while I do that, I want you to keep in mind that lesson of the last episode about 
predictable trends versus outlying moments within that trend. Because I think I covered that substantially enough last episode that we don't have to keep repeatedly going back to it. But I will admit that today's episode has a little bit of the eating your veggies feel to it because there is a lot of science I want to share. And it's not so much like the adventure stories of last chapter. But I'm telling you this science because I do have a lot of really interesting stories to share, especially in my next chapter. But also I have something special at the end of this episode as well. If you truly do understand how these Milankovitch cycles work. I'm going to finally bring back that green Sahara that I talked about that occurred roughly between 10,000 and 5,000 years ago in the very first episode of this book. If you didn't have a chance to listen to it or if you've forgotten, which I wouldn't blame you, I talked about how the Harmattan of the Sahara Desert picks up fragments and dust of this ancient green Sahara where tons of life lived in northern Africa and died and fertilized the sand, which is blown into the atmosphere and lands into the Amazon, helping it grow. Today is where we finally get to see some more connections to that ancient green Sahara that I basically opened up this book with. Because as it turns out, the Sahara still has a few more secrets to reveal. If you do find this episode a little hard to follow because of the science, I think it makes a lot more sense when you see this stuff as a graph, and I share multiple graphs in this section that really visualize what I'm trying to share verbally in this podcast. You can always receive a copy of the book if you give a donation. I always give a free PDF copy for whatever donation you choose to give. And please like, rate, review, tell a friend, whatever you can do to help spread the word of this podcast so hopefully more people can hear it. I always update when I release new episodes at nocharacterlimit at mastodon.world. And, of course, you can always reach out to me with any feedback you might have at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. So now, let's finally close out Chapter 6 and hear the rest of Forgotten Seasons. Chapter 6, Part 4, Milankovitch Visions, The Procession and Obliquity Year The human-caused warming that we are currently living through is unprecedented, but it is not the first extreme swing in climate that we've lived through as a species. 
we have been subjected to serious global climate change from the natural cycles of the Earth. Ice cores were only just the beginning in our understanding of Earth's hidden history. Further sediment cores found at the bottom of lakes and oceans have opened a window into Earth's past, revealing the effects of those mysterious deep-time seasons made by the 26,000-year-long precession hand, 41,000-year-long obliquity hand, and the 100,000-year-long eccentricity hand of the Earth clock. The role that these deep-season cycles of Earth's dance through space have are so profound that if we were to see the Earth at different times in its history, it would look like a completely alien world. The Earth's deep seasons play a much more subtle, but a far more powerful role in the climate of Earth than something like a volcano or asteroid. But such large timescales of tens of thousands of years slip from our comprehension when we have nothing to compare it to. What is 1,000 years to us when most of us won't be able to live for 100? Our minds are more likely to make less of a distinction between 10,000 years ago and 100,000 years ago than we will make between 100 years ago and 1,000 years ago, simply because we tend to cling to more comprehensible numbers. But for the Earth, the timescale of 100 years is pathetically short and leaves the life of a human no more significant than that of a fruit fly. And actually, using the fruit fly as a model can help us understand these titanic deep seasons just a little better. So, what would it be like if a human's life was squeezed into the two-week lifespan of the fruit fly? If a child was born on a Monday at midnight, she would be seven years old by the end of the day. By Wednesday morning, she would be ready for college, and exactly one week after her birth, she would already be retired. The following week would be her golden years, and by the end of the following Sunday, as the clock once again approached midnight, she would celebrate her 100th birthday and die. If a human's life were squeezed into that of a fruit fly, it would only take three hours to experience one year in our time, an entire life in two weeks. Now, imagine if this person with a two-week lifespan was born in the middle of May in New York. The temperature in late May would reflect the last vestiges of the cool late spring weather 
and as each day passed, the weather would gradually warm. She would live and die without ever knowing the long, hot days of summer, where oppressive heat pushes all life into the shade, leaving insects to buzz lazily through dry, golden fields. The cooling trend from summer into autumn, with its colorful leaves and overnight frosts, would contrast directly with her life of budding trees, flowering fields, and warming weather. The icy depths of winter would be an alien landscape, with unimaginable lows transformed by ice and snow, with nothing but frigid gusts to break the silence. While this fruit fly person has lived her entire life on Earth, she has only experienced a mere fraction of the Earth's yearly cycle. Even if she was able to learn about it and research it, the reality is no fruit fly human would have experienced such extremes in generations. The distance between her and her February ancestors would be similar to us trying to understand the difference between now and the people of the 1257 Somalis eruption. To her, that would be another time and another era, unlike what she was experiencing in her warming days of late May. Winter or summer would be ancient and foreign landscapes to her, nearly unfathomable to anything she had experienced over her entire, short lifespan. The deep time seasons of procession, obliquity, and eccentricity are to us like the seasons of a tropical year to a fruit fly. Although the span of these deep seasons are much longer in relationship to the lifespan of one person than the year is to the fruit fly. The life of a fruit fly is 126 of a year, but the life of a 100-year-old human is 1,260th of a single procession year one four hundred and tenth of an obliquity year, and one one thousandth of an eccentricity year. These three seasons that impact the wobble, tilt, and distance of the Earth to the Sun are much more powerful than anything even our species could produce on our own. In fact, there is a mathematical regularity to these deep seasons that was predicted before even a single ice core sample was collected. And these predictions would turn out to be found true because of core samples that came later. If Hipparchus is remembered as the first person to discover the procession, then Milutin Milankovitch will be remembered for predicting the impact of the precession, obliquity, and eccentricity on the climate. 
Milankovic, an early 20th century Serbian astrophysicist, began his career as an engineer for a construction company. Later, he joined the faculty at the University of Belgrade in 1909 for applied mathematics, where he dedicated his time to developing a mathematical theory of climate, which is still attributed to him to this day. In the early 20th century, this could have been seen as a little crazy. Milankovic could have easily been overlooked by history as a mere eccentric, maybe akin to those who study eugenics during the same time, throwing himself into a science where there is no mathematical theory to underpin it. After all, the climate and weather can seem as mercurial as volcanic eruptions and earthquakes, offering no real mathematical pattern on how to pinpoint them with any meaningful precision. To this day, meteorologists struggle with accurately reporting tomorrow's weather. So how could something like the climate be underpinned with such precise mathematical regularity over a century ago before the first ice core was even pulled? There were some enticing patterns that were discovered before Milankovitch's time by earlier observant minds. Milankovitch was intrigued by their findings and looked towards those giant astronomical clocks and considered their impact on the Earth and its climate. There was the equinoctial precession, that 26,000-year-long wobble that gave us our retinue of lodestars, which was first noticed long before by Hipparchus. Then, Milankovitch looked at the 41,000-year-long obliquity, or the changing of the Earth's tilt, which was likely discovered over 3,000 years ago in China and India. Finally, there was the 100,000-year-long eccentricity, or change of the distance between the Sun and the Earth due to its elliptical orbit, something observers of the stars had noticed and understood incrementally over centuries, particularly with the transit of Venus over the previous two centuries. Milankovitch must have pulled himself away from the habit of thinking in much shorter time frames. Most people hardly think outside of tomorrow or yesterday, but when they do, it's typically for only years or decades. To those with a historical mind, centuries can be pondered about with informed context and understanding. But at some point, most people's eyes go glassy, and the years would begin to blend meaninglessly with each other. But Milankovitch thought on timescales that spanned thousands, or even millions, of years. Milankovitch was like the fruit fly that could wrap his mind around the whole cycle of the year less than a week into his life. 
he could see things that other fruit flies couldn't begin to comprehend. If we start counting by millennia, it was only 1,000 years ago that William the Conqueror's famous Norman conquest of England occurred. Two millennia ago was the birth of Jesus Christ. Three millennia ago was the mysterious collapse of the Bronze Age. Four millennia ago, the reign of the ancient 2,500-year-old civilization of Sumer ended. And five millennia ago was the rise of Egypt in a young desert. And six millennia ago, the Sahara was a lush grassland. Seven millennia ago, the first human metal tools were produced. Eight millennia ago, Europe first begins the practice of farming, while nine millennia ago, the farming first flourished in the Fertile Crescent, one of the oldest agricultural centers in the world. And ten millennia ago, the Green Sahara first appeared and became home to the ancient Kiphians. The origins of Egypt is a midpoint of the last 10,000 years, with the Kiphians on one end of the timescale and us today on the other. And yet, we haven't even tracked half of the time it takes for a single procession cycle, the shortest of Milankovitch's deep seasons. So, to truly imagine these deep-season timescales, it's best that we think of time distances of 10,000 years at a time. Jump about 10,000 years deeper into the past from the ancient Kiphians, and we're at the time of the Lascaux cave paintings in France. And roughly 10,000 years before that, was the beginning of Dolni Vestonice and their mysterious ceramic figurines just over one full procession cycle ago, one cycle of the procession hand on the earth clock. And roughly 10,000 years before that, about 40,000 years in the distant past, the next deep season of obliquity shared a similar tilt as the Earth does today, a time where no known major human settlements existed. Then finally jump another 60,000 years before that, and we would reach one eccentricity cycle ago, 100,000 years from us today where the orbit of the Earth was similar as it is now around the Sun. One tick on the eccentricity hand has seen nearly four tocks on the procession hand, and a little over two tocks on the obliquity hand. The eccentricity cycle is a timescale so distant that it is the beginning of the first human-made structures on Earth. Milankovitch theorized that the Earth would have predictable climate cycles based upon Earth's 26,000-year precession, 41,000-year obliquity, and 100,000-year eccentricity. 
Still, decades before the first ice core was drilled, Milankovic created a mathematical theory to prove it. The wobble, tilt, and distance from the Earth to the Sun all played primary roles in his theory, because each of these unique positions of Earth in space had a direct effect to its relationship with how the sunlight was hitting the Earth. Already, we have seen how the procession's wobble gives us a vastly different night sky, depending on the millennium. But a procession year brings much more than a change of view. It has the ability to change the entire climate. The Earth's obliquity impacts the climate over the course of its 41,000-year cycle as well. The Earth travels around the Sun on an orbital plane called the ecliptic, with nearly all planets orbiting the Sun within three degrees of it. It's almost as if the planets are floating in an invisible circular river around the sun where they bob midway between being in and out of the waterline or the ecliptic. But the Earth's pole isn't perpendicular to the ecliptic, but instead the Earth kind of lulls between a 22.1 degree and a 24.5 degree tilt, like a listing ball bobbing in a stream. Currently, the pole is listing upward, away from that ecliptic plane, waxing from its most extreme tilt of 24.5 degrees back up to a more upright 22.1 degrees. At the moment, the Earth is at 23.43 degrees when compared to the ecliptic, slowly making its way up to 23.42 degrees. Once one full cycle has been completed, from 24.5 to 22.1 degrees and back down to 24.5 degrees again, then 41,000 years has passed on Earth to create one obliquity year. The obliquity year has similar special days in the same way that we experience our annual solstices and equinoxes during the tropical year. It basically takes 20,500 years to go from one extreme obliquity solstice at 24.5 degrees to the other solstice at 22.1 degrees, and then 20,500 more years to get back to its original position. At 24.5 degrees, the Earth has reached its maximum tilt, providing the poles with the most direct sunlight during summer and the longest darkness in the winter. But in an obliquity year, a single tropical summer or winter whizzes by like a millisecond. This 
maximum tilt of 24.5 degrees is basically the summer solstice of the obliquity year. But while our tropical year solstices last for only a day, the obliquity year solstice of 24.5 degrees lasts over 100 years before slowly, minute by minute, degree by degree, the ascent to the minimum tilt begins again. When the Earth tilts to its minimum of 22.1 degrees, it is more like the obliquity winter solstice. When the Earth stands at its most upright and the poles are getting the weakest solar rays. While the solstice only lasts for a century, so too does every degree leading up to and moving away from it. Currently, we live in a time where the tilt is moving back towards an obliquity winter, creating a climate trend of weaker and weaker rays hitting the poles over the course of thousands of years, slowly cooling the planet. And about every 10,000 years between the solstices are the obliquity equinoxes happening at about 23.3 degrees, which just happens to be almost exactly where the tilt is right now in its cycle. We have just passed the autumn equinox of the obliquity year, so close that we are still within a day of it if you broke down the 41,000 years of obliquity into 365 days. The obliquity summer solstice happened about 10,700 years ago, around the age of the earliest Kiffians of the Sahara, the same time it was first becoming green. In about another 9,800 years from now, the Earth will have reached its obliquity winter solstice. The last time the Earth had seen the winter solstice on the obliquity calendar was over 31,000 years ago, just before the time of the Dolny Vestonice settlement. The people of Dolny Vestonice would have shared the same procession sky as us, but they lived during a much colder obliquity winter compared to our warm autumn. So how long is a human life in an obliquity year? If we took the 41,000 years that it takes to complete one obliquity cycle and compressed it to 365 days, a person living to 100 would be born on Monday at midnight and be dead just after 9 p.m. that same day. As humans, we will never experience the other 364 days of the obliquity year. We live within just one single day in obliquity time. And for us, the season has just crossed from a warm late summer into the first day of autumn. 
basking in the lingering effects of nearly 20,000 years of warming from the more direct rays on the Earth's poles. Like how the warmest part of the day comes several hours after noon. Like the fruit fly, we will never know another season, or in this case, even another day on the obliquity calendar. If we try for a single moment, we can just barely grasp such a timescale by conjuring up the fruit fly comparison, giving a sense of our place in the history of this planet. But then there is the disturbing fact that the Earth has gone through about 100,000 obliquity cycles already since its creation. We then have to try and comprehend our significance while knowing that we will only have the opportunity to live for less than one day out of a single obliquity year, a cycle that has already happened 100,000 times before us and will likely occur at least 100,000 times more before the Earth is destroyed. Suddenly, we could only wish that our lives in an obliquity year were as significant as that of the fruit flies to the tropical year. Chapter 6, Part 5, Arkin 8 and the Eccentricity Year After procession and obliquity, Milankovitch's theory also included the third deep-season cycle that impacts the climate, the Earth's 100,000-year-long eccentricity. It's worth noting that there is another, more subtle, 413,000-year-long eccentricity cycle as well, but due to its slight impact, the focus here will only be on the 100,000-year-long cycle. The Earth's orbit around the Sun changes from a near-perfect circle to a more elliptical shape that squeezes and expands changing the Earth's distance from the Sun by millions of miles over the course of one eccentricity year, or 100,000 years. The cause of this contraction and expansion in our orbit has to do with the gravitational pull from sources like the Moon and distant planets like Jupiter and Saturn. The gas giants and the sun play this slow, subtle, eternal tug-of-war with the Earth, which gives us our unique orbit around the sun. If the precession is how the Earth is wobbling in the river, and the obliquity is how the Earth is listing in the river, then the eccentricity is the path the Earth takes along this eternal river. And just like with the obliquity year, we can give the eccentricity year 
its own solstices. The summer solstice of the eccentricity year is when the Earth comes closest to the Sun along its orbital path. This nearness to the Sun is called perihelion. Currently, the perihelion of the eccentricity year actually occurs every tropical year, or just every year, during the northern hemisphere's winter, when that hemisphere is tilted away from the sun. Another way to say it is that the Earth's closest approach to the sun occurs during the southern hemisphere's summer, providing the bottom half of the Earth with not only more direct, but also more powerful rays of sun, because of the Earth's physical proximity to the sun. The perihelion occurs around January 4th every year. At perihelion, the Earth's proximity to the sun is roughly 91.4 million miles. It's important to recognize that the perihelion is not the same time as the annual tropical solstice, which also occurs every year, but comes several weeks earlier, around December 21st. But like the tropical solstice, the perihelion also occurs once per tropical year. But the perihelion occurs about 100,000 times per eccentricity year each perihelion occurring at slightly different times and locations than the last, never really to repeat until the eccentricity year has completed its full 100,000-year cycle. In an eccentricity year, the perihelion comes with the frequency and regularity of high noon during the tropical year rather than the much rarer occurrence of a tropical solstice. The aphelion, or the point at which the Earth is farthest away from the Sun, is about 94.5 million miles and occurs around July 4th every year. A difference of roughly 3 million miles occurs then between the perihelion and the aphelion during Earth's perpetual orbit around the Sun. Depending on the time of year that the astronomers monitored the transit of Venus in the 1760s, it would have yielded different results, because the distance the Earth is at any given point along its path varies with the year, as well as where it is in the eccentricity cycle. The average of these two extreme distances between the aphelion and the perihelion also is the distance of one astronomical unit, or AU as it's sometimes called, which astronomers use as the average distance from the center of the Earth to the center of the Sun. The 93 million mile astronomical unit is used to measure distances across our vast solar system. While we may only be 1 AU away from the Sun, Neptune is 30 AUs away. 
placing it nearly 3 billion miles out into the depths of the outer solar system. Where Earth is in proximity to the Sun during its orbit can have serious impacts on our climate. Currently, this 3 million mile difference provides our planet with about 7% more radiation intensity during the January 4th perihelion when compared to the July 4th aphelion. This is a significant difference in solar radiation, but the differences between the aphelion and perihelion can be even greater when the Earth's orbit becomes more elliptical throughout the eccentricity year. As the elliptical orbit stretches out over the course of tens of thousands of years, the difference in intensity of the solar radiation can be as much as 23% more during perihelion than aphelion. Having nearly a quarter more solar radiation hitting the planet at a certain time of the year is going to have a significant impact on the climate. It even matters whether it's the northern hemisphere or southern hemisphere that's receiving this additional solar radiation in any given year because of the uneven distribution of land between the two halves of the Earth. The northern hemisphere is comprised of about 61% water and 39% land, while the southern hemisphere is 81% water and only 19% land, much of which is buried under the Antarctic ice. And while the ocean absorbs most of the sun's rays and ice reflects them back into space, land will temporarily capture and then release most of its collected radiation back into the atmosphere. This means that the 20% more land found in the northern hemisphere, nearly all of it free from ice, is going to have a greater impact on the climate than the ocean and ice-covered southern hemisphere when it is receiving more solar radiation. So currently, when the January 4th perihelion comes around, most of that excess 7% radiation the Earth receives is absorbed into the massive southern ocean or is reflected back into space by the Antarctic ice, which has the effect of almost evening out the difference in the radiation intensity from the July 4th aphelion. And when July 4th comes around and the Earth is farthest from the sun, the northern hemisphere is given a less extreme summer than the southern hemisphere. So, while the intensity of the sun's radiation hitting the Earth is stronger in January and weaker in July, the water, ice, and land distribution around the Earth means that the eccentricity is not currently having any extreme effects on our climate. We just happen to be living through one of the most stable parts of the eccentricity year. It takes about 
58 years for the date of the perihelion or the aphelion to move by a single day. But in about 10,000 years, the perihelion and the aphelion will have switched completely, bringing the northern hemisphere closest to the sun during their summer. Having more land than the southern hemisphere will make the northern hemisphere's summers hotter because it will both be receiving more solar radiation with more direct rays. But it will also mean that more extreme winters are in store as well because it will not be receiving the extra dose of radiation that it currently gets during winter. The extremes of the seasons are more pronounced when the northern hemisphere's annual solstices and the eccentricities perihelion or the aphelion coincide, creating a much hotter perihelion summer solstice and a much colder aphelion winter solstice. Hotter summers and colder winters where the perihelion and aphelion match the northern hemisphere's solstices is exactly the sort of world that the ancient Kiphians lived in as they moved into the newly green Sahara. So why does the eccentricity take 100,000 years to complete a cycle if the perihelion and the aphelion take only 20,000 years to return to the same place on the tropical calendar? The answer to this has more to do with that squeezing of the orbit between its more circular and elliptical shape. It takes about five different cycles of the perihelion and aphelion switching in order for the orbit to look more like it did roughly 100,000 years ago. This process can technically take anywhere from 96,000 years to 125,000 years, but 100,000 is the most commonly used average for this wonky eccentricity year much how the Babylonians chose a year to be 360 days, a close enough number. When the Earth has a more elliptical orbit around the Sun, even more extreme climate swings can occur on Earth, where the northern hemisphere solstices and their corresponding perihelions and aphelions match up. The eccentricity cycle impacts us in other ways as well. Currently, the Earth moves faster when it is closer to the Sun during the Northern Hemisphere's winter, and slows down when the Earth is farthest away from the Sun during its summer. But the eccentricity gives the Northern Hemisphere a spring that lasts, on average, three days longer than autumn and a summer that lasts roughly five days longer than winter. The eccentricity also generally makes the Earth 45 degrees colder than average during the northern summer and 45 degrees warmer than average 
during the northern winter. And no, I didn't make a mistake saying that, because for the southern hemisphere, it's the opposite. As the Earth orbits farther from the sun, it begins to slow down, giving the southern hemisphere an autumn and winter that are longer than its spring and summer. And because the Earth is closer to the sun during the southern summer, that is when the Earth is 45 degrees Fahrenheit warmer, and when the Earth is farthest from the sun during the southern winter is when the Earth is 45 degrees colder than average. This strange, slow, elliptical dance around the sun subtly plays with the seasons of the Earth in perpetuity and can have unintuitive effects. One eccentricity year ago, humanity was living in a very different world. Just as those yet unborn 100,000 years into our future will look back and find the artifacts from us today as foreign and ancient. We have difficulty piecing together the past from 100 or 1,000 years ago, let alone 10,000 or 100,000 years ago, as the dunes of time sweep over history and shroud it from us. But shockingly, some human artifacts have survived the last 100,000 years though it might be less surprising to know that they have been found on the border between Egypt and Sudan, near a small river town called Wadi Halfa, at the archaeological site known as Arkin 8. The people of Arkin 8 also lived along the archaic 30 million year old Nile, so it was as familiar to our long lost eccentricity kin of 100,000 years ago as it is to us today. They are the last people who had roughly the same orbit around the sun as we do today. Today, in the desert sands of Arkan 8, Remnants of some of the oldest buildings in the world have been discovered. Oval depressions and flat sandstone slabs are all that's left of the housing structures from the people who lived on the banks of the Nile so long ago. They likely lived in a dome shelter that was easily able to be taken down and moved if necessary. What these structures were made of will likely never be known, but the roofing of the structure could have possibly been that of the skins of animals or the brush of the local flora. It's been theorized that this may have been a location that these distant Saharans return to each year, as thousands of stone tools have been discovered on site. While the Green Sahara Kiffians lived in Gobro 10,000 years ago, the people of Arkin 8 were about 10 times more distant in the past, making the modern world and the Kiffians 
much closer together than the Kiffians and the dwellers of Arkan 8. And while piecing together the threads of culture left behind by the Kiffians at Gobro through burial style and other artifacts have been difficult, it is that much harder piecing together the wisps of life 100,000 years ago with only a fraction of the artifacts. At Arkan 8, we know for certain only a few things. That there were definitely people who lived there, and that these people left behind thousands of stone tools. What's left of their homes indicate to archaeologists that the people of Arkan 8 had quite possibly built some of the earliest structures known to humanity. They may have lived in these structures for at least part of the year, likely returning during different seasons for food or some other purpose. The people of Arkan 8 may very likely have been some of the earliest semi-sedentary people of Earth, the first people to recognize the value of staying in one place and building structures to protect themselves. If this is true, this was a watershed moment that contrasted to the hundreds of thousands of years of the nomadic lifestyle of hominins, a group which includes both humans and human-like species. But these people lived so long ago that even carbon-14 dating, one of archaeology's strongest dating methods, doesn't work on the remaining artifacts anymore, because they lived so long ago. Archaeologists date the artifacts at Arkan 8 by looking at the tools that were made and comparing them to other tools that were made in the surrounding area earlier and later in time. In the end, the estimated date of Arkan 8 is 100,000 BCE, one eccentricity year ago. If we took the lifespan of the people living to the age of 70 years old, it would take just over three generations to go back to the creation of the United States, about 29 generations to go back to the birth of Jesus, 71 generations to go back to the creation of Egypt, and 143 generations to reach back to the age of the Kiffians at Gobero. But to reach back to the people who lived at Arkan 8, then we need to go back 1,428 generations ago, a staggeringly deep dive into the past. We need to go back this far in time to find when the Earth was last in an orbit around the Sun like we are in an orbit around it today. Between them and us, 100,000 aphelions and 100,000 perihelions occurred at varying distances from the Sun, 
as the Earth's orbit expanded and then contracted until it finally returned to a similar orbit 100,000 years later. The people of this time lived in a near-circular orbit around the sun, just as we do today. And for a time, the climate caused by eccentricity was also similarly stable, like it is for us today. Precession, obliquity, and eccentricity were the three factors that Milankovitch stitched together to determine his theory on the history of Earth's climate. Unlike the sources cited by climate deniers with limited data on how the Earth's climate changed over the course of a few hundred years, Milankovitch's theory spanned the entire history of the Earth. The wobble of the precession, the tilt of the obliquity, and the orbit of eccentricity all play critical roles as to how tropical or frozen our world became, or will become in the future. The cycle of each of these three deep seasons play upon the other to either magnify or neutralize the effects of the other on our planet. And Milankovitch was able to figure this out decades before the first ice core drilling for the International Geophysical Year. Within a couple of years of the first ice core being drilled, Milankovitch's theories on the impact of precession, obliquity, and eccentricity would be unequivocally confirmed. But Milankovitch wouldn't live long enough to see his climate model justified. Dying in 1958, having been criticized his entire life on a theory that had no independent evidence to confirm it. He would never see the day where his model was legitimized by hundreds of millions of years of geological records. But he diligently worked on the theory and its mathematical underpinnings anyway. This is the sacrifice of a man who puts the universe before himself, listening to its language even as the rest of his species goes along ignorantly doubtful. And the only way for him to have made this theory was to have listened to other scientists who did the same before him. Without their invaluable contribution over the course of centuries, Milankovitch would not have been able to make his theory at all. This is how humans who have never met each other have continued to work together through time, from Hipparchus to Milankovitch. The discovery of the precession, obliquity, and eccentricity, as well as their effects on the Earth, have been an achievement of many, even if Milankovitch gets the cycles named after him. Now known today as the Milankovitch Cycles, the discovery of precession, obliquity, and eccentricity has allowed us to understand 
deep climate science of nearly the entire history of Earth. Chapter 6, Part 6, Humid Sahara Redux So what did Milankovitch see when he peered into the history of the Earth through his crystal ball of mathematics? It was a planet of dynamic change, where tundra, desert, forest, jungle, and grassland all battled for dominance. Once again, let's return to the procession of the equinoxes to understand how powerful just one of these deep season cycles can be on the planet. The procession, that unique phenomenon discovered by Hipparchus and controls our pole stars, just happens to also be the direct cause of making the humid Sahara, turning a lifeless desert into a green savanna. Like a rare exotic plant, the Sahara sits lifeless for millennia, and then, within a mere few centuries, life bursts forth like a phoenix from the ashes and the entirety of northern Africa blooms. The megalakes form again, the savannas stretch across thousands of miles, and animals are drawn in from all over the continent. But how can a mere wobble from the procession cause this miraculous shift? The wobble of the earth also happens to impact the direction of the annual monsoon that typically reigns over Central Africa and changes it just enough that once every 20,000 years, it can bring the Sahara to life. After 20,000 years of desert, 20,000 years Suddenly, the skies begin to open up over the Sahara for roughly 5,000 years before the winds shift south again and desert reclaims the land to sit dormant for thousands more years to come. 5,000 years is long enough for a people who lived during the relatively brief window of abundance to believe the Sahara was always a grassland, and would always be a grassland, to feel as if it were a staple of the earth. But then, just as it did directly before the rise of Egypt, the procession would shift and bleach the ground to sand once again. But like the flagellants of the 13th century after the Somalis eruption, how many people looked to themselves as the cause for this loss of plant and animal life that once bountifully surrounded their village, despite the fact that the climate change was literally written in the stars? Suddenly, 
thousand years of existence that lived across the vast reaches of northern Africa had all died and decomposed into desert dust. It would seem like a meaningless existential tragedy until you remember what happens to the dust of the ancient dead. Picked up by winds, this dust, now as fine as powder, is swept up into the highest reaches of the atmosphere and goes on to fertilize nearly an entire continent of dense rainforest across the ocean. The existence of 5,000 years of humid Saharan life provides nutrients to one of the most diverse ecosystems on the planet for millennia, despite the fact that it is an ocean away. Considering the cause and effect relationship between the procession, the Sahara, and the Amazon, the entire process almost seems intentional, a sort of divine intervention, elegantly sustaining life across the planet with little more than a twist in the spin of a ball. These effects are not the cause of chance weather or random volcanic activity, but instead through the consistent position, spin, and wobble of the Earth in outer space. And it's this consistency that life has somehow, intuitively, learned to adapt to, just like the annual flooding of the Nile responding to the predictable patterns in time, no matter how long one of these patterns may take. When those ancient Kiffians walked among the young humid Sahara of 10,000 years ago, they were participating in a cycle that has existed since the beginning of the Earth, just as the people of Arkan 8 had 100,000 years ago. Since they, too, experienced the humid Sahara of their own time. Both groups got to experience the bounty of that rare window provided when the heavens align and the Sahara magically comes to life. And both groups seemed to flourish, pushing humanity further than it ever had before. Because we know the impact of the Earth's position in space, we can look back to see when the Sahara was desert and when it was in full bloom through tens of thousands of years. Earth's dizzying dance through space has conjured a savanna out of a desert, not just once, but over and over again, like clockwork. The rare cosmological bloom of the Sahara lasts on and off for about 5,000 years. So about once every 20,000 years, the Sahara turns green for about 5,000 years before going back to desert again and sleeping for the next 15,000 years until it blooms with life again. Despite the procession occurring over the course of 26,000 years, the reason the Sahara blooms once about every 20,000 years is because of 
a slippage between what constitutes one procession cycle and the impact the procession has on the Sahara. This is sort of like how the sidereal year, which is how long it takes for the Earth to return to the same point in space after a year, takes over 20 minutes longer to complete than the tropical year, which is how long it takes for the Earth to complete one orbit around the Sun. While it does take 26,000 years for the poles to return to its original pole star, the seasonal effects from the sun that switch North Africa from desert to savanna takes only 20,000 years. But both are effects of the procession's unique wobble. And just like an exotic flower blooming, there is no hard and fast rule that the Sahara must green every 20,000 years. The other Milankovitch cycles of obliquity and eccentricity can extend the humid Sahara at some points while nullifying it completely at others. The Sahara may sometimes lie dormant for 40,000 years or more, only arising when the monsoon intensifies, a direct result of the Milankovitch cycles. Likewise, the desert can bloom for longer than 5,000 years at a time, depending on the cosmological recipe at play. And when the Sahara becomes a grassland, the Amazon must also wait for millennia for its annual nutrient influx from the Harmattan to return from the sky. And then, as the grass gives way to sand, the grains are once again rich in nutrients from all the life that had once lived there, and the dust is ready to float back across the Atlantic to give a renewed boost of nutrients for the Amazon. Such large-scale events can inspire and overwhelm us with awe, knowing that the Earth has been gracefully dancing a song of life for hundreds of thousands of years to the tune of the Milankovitch cycles. The insignificance that we can feel about a 100,000-year-long timescale can be dwarfed even further when we look at the Earth's 4.5 billion year history. We go about our daily business pausing briefly to anguish about such crushing timescales, but only long enough to remember with relief that we don't need to think about them too deeply if we don't want to. When Heinrich Barth discovered the drawings of wildlife left on the walls of cliffs and caves in the middle of the Sahara Desert in the 19th century, he was like a fruit fly in winter, marveling at the remains of some fruit fly summer long ago. A glimpse into an unfathomable ancient world. And just like fruit flies have no memory capacity from one season to the next, we too are not intrinsically programmed to adapt to the deep seasons of the Milankovitch cycles. With a wobble of the earth, 
a shifting of a monsoon in the Indian Ocean can end up impacting the health of the Amazon rainforest for millennia. The continent-sized land rush that followed the greening of the Sahara would ultimately be followed some thousands of years later by the inevitable exodus that the drying Sahara would force onto its residents. There is every reason to believe our own human ancestors were shaped by the impacts of the Milankovitch cycles in profound ways, a cruel cosmic scientific experiment on repeat, one that we didn't even know was occurring due to our meager lifespans. Like a vast garden, the Sahara entices us in times of bounty, luring us in, beckoning us to depend on it, and, just like Lucy holding the football for Charlie Brown, the people begin to trust it and depend on it. But then, just as suddenly, it cruelly turns to dust and brings on the Harmattan, driving nearly all life from its realm for thousands of years to come. Is it a coincidence that the end of the Green Sahara 100,000 years ago is accompanied by some of the earliest known structures humankind has ever built? Or that the Green Sahara from 10,000 to 5,000 years ago ended up with the creation of one of the earliest city-state civilizations? When the Sahara was green, People moved in for generations and became complacent with the Sahara's bounty. And when the earth mindlessly wobbled the wrong way, people must have jarringly adapted to the unpredictable change. Could Earth's position in space have been the primary factor for humans to create structures 100,000 years ago or city-states 5,000 years ago to survive because they were forced, in desperation, to work together rather than to die in the increasingly sparse environment? Amazingly, the scientific evidence points to the direct impact of Earth's position in space as possibly, even likely, the cause for such human advancements. There's something strangely surreal and spooky to consider that our actions and behavior are in some way dictated by the Earth's mere angles into darkness and radiation. And yet, nearly all living organisms do respond to the tropical seasons in some way, so it's not that unusual when you think about it. It actually makes more sense to consider that humans might behave in certain ways during specific times around Milankovitch's deep seasons. To any individual human, though, the luck or tragedy that lay before them is immediate, stark, and unforeseen. But yet, these events were predestined by the Earth's predictable cycles. 
While we may only think that we're reacting to an ecological change, deep down, we may be reacting to a celestial change in the Earth's direction and orbit into the void. Listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast, as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.